Welcome to Fanti, the podcast for all those complex and complicated conversations about the gray areas in our lives. I am on vacation and not dealing with the bullshit or a calendar and probably drinking something and enjoying an edible Jared Hill. I'm writing solo this week with a couple of guests that I'm really excited to have joining me to fill in the incredible void left by the non-binary thorn in my side, Travel Anderson. Travel is off this week, and technically I am too, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, in our Past the Popcorn segment, we'll have Asha Daya, who will be talking to us about things related to women's rights and Roe and all of that. Plus, Keith Boykin's gonna be here. He's uh, back for the second time this year. Um, I'm really leaning into my political side and chatting with these folks that are just really, really smart and brilliant and my favorite folks to have uh, when I'm having political conversations. All of that is getting started right now. Let's get into Pass the Popcorn. All right, so first things first in Pass the Popcorn, I want to talk about Roe v. Wade. The right to abortion is a conversation that has growing relevance again in America right now as we're in a time that sees Roe v. Wade eroding away at breakneck pace across the country. Now poised to find its way back to the Supreme Court, a woman's right to choose is under threat. If you ever tuned into any of my old shows, either the old podcast or my radio show, you may know my guest for the next few minutes. She's an incredible women's rights activist, documentarian, and author of the book, Today's Wonder Women, Everyday Superheroes Who Are Changing the World. I'm excited to get to say these words. Asha Daya, welcome to Fantai. Hey, Jared. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a long time. <laughs> it has been. It has been. I'm so excited to talk to you. You know, you're one of my favorite folks to bring on and get to chat about um, these, these issues. And so I want to just jump right in. Um, we've all heard about things happening in Texas. And from a journalism standpoint, we're recording this episode early, so things can change uh, in the days and weeks to come. But first things first, talk to me about the fallout of what's happened in Texas um, and their restrictions uh, around abortion. So Texas's law SB8 essentially targets what is known as the fetal heartbeat. And I use quote, uh, you know, air quotes here because Scientifically and medically, that's not actually accurate, and there's plenty of information you can Google. But the real aim of this law is to essentially ban all abortion, because six weeks is the time when most pregnant people, they've just figured out that they've missed a period. Most people don't figure out they're pregnant until like eight or nine weeks. I myself have had two kids both times, both were planned. I didn't realize until eight or nine weeks. So that's that's something too important to remember right off the bat. The fallout of this really is that we're going to see more and more states uh, proposing copycat laws. Florida's also already making noises. Mississippi um, is about to go to the Supreme Court on December the 1st to argue their own abortion ban. Um, Ohio is going to copy Alabama. We're going to see this spread across the nation. And essentially, we're going to see uh, reproductive justice and rights advocates having to find new avenues and new ways for people to get access to safe um, abortion care, which means going to California, going to New York, going to Colorado. And that's not possible for a lot of people. That is all by design. So essentially, I just want to mention that Roe v. Wade has been on the chopping block for a long, long time. This is just the first law that has actually made it past an ultra-conservative majority Supreme Court bench. And so we see how tied into the 2020 election it was of Trump, who nominated three super-conservative Supreme Court justices. And so the fallout really is, this is not the end of their attacks on abortion rights. It is just the beginning because now they've gotten a huge green light from the Supreme Court and it's only going to continue. One of the stories I was reading earlier today, I, it caught my attention. I saw the headline saying that uh, abortion clinics in Oklahoma are really kind of overwhelmed with how many folks are coming from Texas and that two thirds of the people that they're seeing are coming from Texas. If we're thinking about this from a longer term standpoint, I'm, I'm curious how you're thinking about like, what would the repercussions of something like Roe v. Wade being overturned, what would that look like in practical application? Yeah, well, you basically uh, outlined it. We're going to see more and more people having to travel outside of Texas. Texas is a huge state. And let's rewind a couple of years back in 2016, there was another Supreme Court case, HB2 in Texas, which essentially attacked clinics and their uh, legalities and because many, especially independent clinics, weren't able to keep up with these standards, which were bogus, by the way, um, nearly half of the state's clinics shut down. 
So already we see a state like Texas having less and less access to abortion clinics. The majority of people who get abortions in America go to independent abortion clinics. So fund them, not just Planned Parenthood. But now with this law, we're going to see even less people um, getting access to the care that they need, which meet, which puts more strain on surrounding states. But when those states start enacting their own laws similar to SB8, well, then where are people going to go? Because now you're talking about people who may not have access to be able to travel, access to childcare, access to time off at work, depending on what their jobs are. So it really becomes an issue of class, it becomes an issue of race, becomes an issue of poverty, and it really underscores, um, you know, some of the foundational um, targets of the anti-abortion movement. Um, which began because of racism. Let's just, uh, you know, put that out there and remember that. I guess one of the reasons I always love having you on is because you always set me up for my next question without knowing that you're doing it. Because I wanted to help people understand the ways that this is racist and classist. Because I think that some people just think about this as it being about pregnancy and like, oh, well, she doesn't want to have the baby, so it's fine. Um, but like, talk to me about how this has race and gender and class uh, tied up in it. Absolutely. Well, on the gender aspect, I just want to also mention that it's not just cishet women that get abortions. There are non-binary people, there are trans folks that get abortions. And we also want to be very inclusive of them too, because because of all the attacks on healthcare, there are trans folks, you know, their rights are being attacked too. So all of this is tied into that. So that's one aspect. The racism aspect is the very foundation of the anti-choice movement. Uh, you know, they call themselves the pro-life movement. And there are now, thankfully, numerous articles and books that you can read about how the pro-life movement actually started. It didn't begin because of Roe versus Wade. It actually began with a, another Supreme Court case called Brown versus Board of Education, which all everything had to do with segregated schools. So I would encourage people to read about that and how Roe versus Wade or abortion just became the... I guess just the tag along issue that they caught onto so that they could continue a racist agenda. So I would really encourage people to Google an article called The Real Origins of the Pro-Life Movement on Politico. It outlines it beautifully. There's a documentary on Netflix called Reversing Row and it goes into those origins. So it's really, really important to put racism at the front and center of this argument because it honestly, it undergirds a lot of other issues like voting rights, like access to healthcare, uh, mass incarceration, you know, racism is at the foundation of those issues too. And when it comes to poverty, well, here's a couple of stats for you. 60% of people who get abortions in America are mothers. You know, there's this idea that, oh, people are just carelessly using abortion as birth control. And they're these, you know, the, the anti-choice movement want to paint this, uh, this image of, you know, these irresponsible people are just going out and getting pregnant. Hey, listen, uh, birth control is a lot less expensive than a, an abortion. So, but the, the mothers who are getting abortions are doing so because, you know, they may not have access to childcare. They're already struggling to look after the children that they have. They may be on a social income bracket, which doesn't allow them to look after another child. And so there are so many other issues that play into abortion that it doesn't just happen in a vacuum. It's interconnected to so many issues of our lives. Did you say 60%? 60%, 6-0. Wow, I've never heard that before. That's incredible. Even on the pro-choice and progressive side, we don't know enough of the stats that, you know, when you think of someone who has an abortion, you don't typically think of a mother. And that's what we need to bring back into the conversation. We have a lot of mothers, a lot of women of color, which already brings that conversation about poverty, socioeconomic status, um, access to all these other support um, issues that we need. So I think we need to kind of really shift the perception of who gets an abortion and why, you know, kind of reframing that narrative a little bit. So there's two other things I want to talk about really quickly. And I know we're, we're close to time here, but what can uh, President Biden or Congress do to kind of avert this issue? Um, and again, we're recording this in late September and this will be coming out in October, but talk to me about what kind of hope there is for saving uh, Roe v. Wade. Yeah, there is hope. I'm glad you used that word because it can seem really bleak right now. There's another Supreme Court case looking at Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban in December. But right now, Congress actually just passed the Women's Health Protection Act. Um, it passed the House and now it goes to the Senate. So this law actually federalizes and protects um, abortion access on a federal level. 
So if Roe versus Wade completely gets obliterated, well, then we have, you know, in theory, President Biden signing this law that enables people in all 50 states to access abortion safely, enables providers to provide abortion care safely without the threat of criminalization or lawsuits, you know, that kind of thing. So I would really encourage people to put your pressure Put the pressure on your legislators, especially in the Senate. You know, the Democrats have a slim majority right now, but the midterms are coming up. So it's really about keeping an eye on the Women's Health Protection Act and also supporting your local abortion funds and um, independent providers in each state. You know, I, I live in a, we live in California. We think we're so lucky, but we just narrowly missed out on a, an extremist governor taking over and completely obliterating access to so many different uh, progressive rights that we that have been so hard fought for. So, uh, yeah, I think it's really about looking what's happening within your state and keeping an eye on that Women's Health Protection Act as well. Again, setting me up perfectly for the next question. I don't know how you do that so often, but you mentioned California. Um, and I saw this headline and I thought, like, I really want to know what Asha thinks about this. And I sent it to you um, in a DM. There's a, a headline that comes from New Yorker magazine that I don't think people would have ordinarily thought of as a, a as a related issue, but the headline says the meaning of California's bill against non-consensual condom removal. And I saw this headline pretty shortly after the Texas uh, law went into effect, and I immediately thought about like how many women get pregnant in situations like this and like we think about you know rape and incest and all of the different ways that you know there's always like an asterisk next to rape but i saw this and i thought like there must be women getting pregnant that don't even know that the condom has been removed or that have found out afterward um and i sent this story to you and you were like oh i have thoughts and i wanted to know um how did that story and like this law that's this bill i should say in california how did that strike you you know it's all part of the larger conversation around bodily autonomy reproductive freedom and reproductive justice uh, and there's a term for this condom removal it's called stealthing. And if anyone has seen the Michaela Cole series, um, I May Destroy You, she brilliantly written a scene about this into the series. Zane Serene is a rapist. He took a condom off in the middle of having sex with me. He placated my shock and gaslighted me with such intention that I didn't have a second to understand the heinous crime that had occurred. You know, when you watch the series, you just think like, Oh, oh, okay, the guy did that and they had a discussion about it. But it really is a serious issue and it is coming to the forefront uh, more and more because it really kind of underscores that idea of, well, you did this without my consent. I consented to having sex with you with a condom and now you're taking that off because you thought I was into it. You know, that's not okay. And, you know, we need to, this is why we need to continue having conversations about what does it mean to have consent? What does it mean to have bodily autonomy, even in a situation where you're consenting to sex with someone? So yeah, it's it's a big issue and, and all of this is intertwined and should be talked about more. And I think this bill is great. California is doing a great job at putting really progressive bills like this at the forefront. Asha, that was awesome. We went like twice the time and I, we were messaging like, let's just go longer. I was like, yes, let's go longer. So thank you so much. You're fantastic. You know, I love having you. Tell people a little bit about Girl Talk HQ before you go, though. Yeah, check out Girl Talk HQ. We share stories of everyday women and girls and people from all around the world sharing stories about gender equality, feminism, social justice. If you have a story to share, please get in touch. You can find us on all the socials at Girl Talk HQ, or you can get in touch with me on all the socials at Asha Dyer. And uh, Asha's book is called Today's Wonder Women, Everyday Superheroes Who Are Changing the World. We'll have the link in the episode description so that you can go check that out. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're getting into it with Keith Boykin. He's back on the show. And uh, y'all loved him last time. You're going to really love him this time. Don't go anywhere. Fantasize coming right back. Hey there, Lorraine. I just wanted to say hi before I do these ads since I won't be able to talk to you. I hope all is well. I'll talk to you next week. All right. Here go the ads. 
Hey there, beautiful people. I know you thought you wouldn't hear me this week, but I had to slide on through to tell you about the wonderful folks over at Raycon who are bringing you the show this week, okay? There is so much going on in the world, whether it's stuff you're excited about. I know I'm going to a couple concerts coming up. I'm taking a couple trips. Or if it's stuff you'd rather not think about, okay? Listen, this debt ceiling situation, my God, all right? These student loan payments about to kick back in, more Lord, we don't want it, okay? You can't always control the vibe out there in the world, but you can always control the vibes in your head with a pair of Raycon wireless earbuds in your ear, okay? I tell y'all, I listen to my podcasts, I listen to my music when I go on my walks, and lately I've been listening to audiobooks. Yes, I know. Take a listen to last week if you don't know what I'm talking about, all right? But I promise you, it is these Raycon wireless earbuds that get me through whatever activity I'm doing, whether I need to pump myself up, whether I need to wind down, whether I'm working out. Raycons are perfect on-the-go audio with an improved rubber oil look. Okay, they're real sleek, real smooth, and they have these gel tips. Okay, different sizes so that no matter if you got big ears, small ears, whatever the case, there's going to be an impressive fit specifically for you, okay? Right now, Fanti listeners can get 15% off their Raycon order at buyraycon.com slash Fanti. That's buyraycon.com slash Fanti to save 15% on your Raycons. Buyraycon.com slash Fanti. This podcast is also sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Listen here. We all take our cars, if you have one, you know, to go get a tune-up to prevent bigger issues down the road, okay? You change that oil, you swipe up them windshield wipers, maybe you do something with your steering fluid, all of that, okay? We also get annual checkups, right? We go to the gym, trying to maintain that physical wellness, prevent some injuries and disease. Well, going to therapy is like all of the above. It's routine maintenance for your mental and emotional wellness to prevent bigger issues down the road. Now, therapy doesn't mean something's wrong with you, all right? Although, you know, you might need a little help in an area or two, okay? Therapy ultimately means that you're investing in yourself to keep your mind healthy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It can be more affordable than in-person therapy and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 40 eight hours. Why invest in everything else and not your mind? This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and Fanti listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash Fanti. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash Fanti. Welcome back, beautiful people. As I said, I'm leaning into the politics this week on the show, and I'm bringing back one of uh, our fan favorites to the show. Uh, he was on with us right after we got a new president and vice president uh, back in January, and he's back with us today. His new book is called Race Against Time, The Politics of a Darkening America. Keith Boykin, welcome to Fanti. Hey, Jared. Good to be here. Thanks for being here. So I want to uh, just dive right into this book because I've been talking with you as you've been writing this book, changing what this book would be and working on what it became. I'd love to kind of get perspective from you off top about where this book began for you. How did you get started with this idea for what this book uh, has become? It's about the past four or five years of what's been going on in our country. It's just been so bizarre and dangerous that I've never seen anything like this before. And I felt like it had to be cataloged and analyzed and put out there in a, in a, from a point of view that recognized the impact of race. I mean, everybody's been talking about the corruption, the chaos, and the unprecedented uh, uh, intrusions on democracy and, and all these other things. But I don't think that people in some quarters, in mainstream quarters, really took into account the importance of race. And from my point of view and the point of view of a lot of black people I know, everything that's going on has been about race. Um, and so when you look at the, the Donald Trump coming in and running for office and and from the very beginning, he's talking about Mexicans. And then he, he continues later on, starts talking about Muslims. Uh, then he goes on and attacks black NFL players. He attacks black members of Congress. He calls the white people who are marching in Charlottesville very fine people. Uh, and 
he—he's just the—he's been one of the most racially divisive presidents in our history. And I think what needed to be said was that he wasn't the first. He was part of a long line. And I felt like it was important to sort of put all that stuff into context and talk about this race against time, how white people, not all, but many white people are losing their mind just watching what's going on with the changing of America. I thought one of the juxtapositions that you made was really, really important um, early in the book. Um, and I'm still reading it right now. And like, I was fascinated by the way that you said that America has always chose compromise over conscience. And you talk about the many different, you actually catalog it really well, um, the many different ways that America has chosen to compromise for white, like peace, right, for the peace of white folks over the, you know, the, the progress that we actually need to be a better nation. Can you unpack that a little bit and explain to people um, the, some of the examples that you were using? Yeah, I mean, this is something that goes back to the beginning of the founding of the Republic. When they established the, the Declaration of Independence, when they wrote that, they took out a line about equality for, for black people, for, for, about slavery. Uh, that was that was the first concession where they said, well, even though we were writing about all men are created equal, we don't really mean that. Uh, from the very beginning of the Declaration, then the Constitution, they expressly omit any direct mention of slavery, but they allow slavery to continue, at least in the importation of slaves to continue, at least until 1808, and they count black slaves as three-fifths of a person. Right there, another compromise in order to sacrifice uh, uh, our social justice for the needs of white peace. And they continue with these compromises in 1820 and 1850, on and on, you know, admitting one state after another and making concessions to make this work, all the way up until the Civil War when suddenly we can't, we can't accept the compromises anymore and, the, and the, the Union collapses. We think that that's going to be the end of it, and this is the perfect opportunity for the country to move forward and finally deal with those social justice issues. And we do for about 12 years from 1865 to 1877. Then it all collapses again. We start focusing on white people being peaceful. We give amnesty to the, the people who were the Confederates who fought against the nation. And we pull out troops from the South who are protecting black people. The country goes into more racial division. We go into the 60s, 1960s, and we say, okay, well, let's pass some more laws, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, the Fair Housing Act. And we think that we're making progress. And then we go back the other direction because we don't want to upset white people. And we continue to make this this same sort of uh, go through the same sort of cycle over and over again. I see it even happening right now. After the insurrection that took place in January, people were saying, "Well, maybe we don't want to be too too mean to too harsh to some of these people. You know, they paid their dues. A few months in jail is enough for trying to destroy our democracy." It, 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 it's, it's the same mentality, and the, the, the fact that the Justice Department, I think, uh, needs, to do, um, needs to be a very aggressive in prosecuting these cases and prosecuting the, the, uh, you know, the, the, the excesses of the previous administration. So once again, we have to remember that when you hear that old slogan, no justice, no peace, what black people mean by that is that if you don't give us some sense of justice, some real true sense of justice, you're never going to have peace for white people but they continually choose peace for white people over justice for us. I think that's such an interesting point. Um, we've had Jarrett Lucas on the show before, you know Jarrett well. We've talked with them on the show before about how the phrase or term uh, peaceful protest has always been a little irksome to them and how you know it's never peaceful for the black folks who are out in the street that have to that are upset that someone has died that you know are harmed in the multiple ways that we can that we can name um when you think about what peace looks like in america what what have we been told or what are we telling each other that peace looks like and what is it what would it actually look like well, you know, Dr. King talked about the difference between a negative piece and a positive piece. And the negative piece, he said, is simply the absence of tension, whereas the positive piece is the presence of justice. So the piece that black people are talking about isn't just let's all not have a fight with each other. Let's not all be divisive. Let's not argue. That's not the important part. The real true piece, the positive piece, is let's have justice in this country. You know, I've, I've been saying this, that white America will never feel safe in this country until black people feel safe in this country. You know, they're buying guns like crazy. They're, they're, they're uh, giving money hand over fist to law enforcement so they can continue to police black and brown bodies. Uh, they're 
build they're building up walls and and uh and, and car walls even in, at the border to prevent uh, Mexicans from coming in. Uh, they're, they're leading an insurrection uh, and, and uh, stopping the, the democracy from, from, from working. They're doing everything they can just to sort of maintain some sort of sense of peace for them, but they're not doing anything to address the social justice needs for black people. And they, they're doing those things because they think those things will make them safer. But what will really make white people safer is by making sure that black people feel safe. If we, if we have jobs and healthcare and good schools to go to and affordable housing and clean environments and safe drinking water, if we have a, a fair criminal justice system, then white people can feel safe and they won't have to go buy all those guns. They won't have to spend so much money on police. They won't have to spend so much money on policing the border because they'll be able to create a more equitable, just society. One of the things that you said in the book that really stuck with me and I like rewound because I'm an audiobook person. So I like rewound it multiple times to hear you say it multiple times. Also, for audiobook people out there, I called Keith and I was like, I love listening to you read this book, like especially like in the evening because Keith, Keith is like really passionate on television. But then you listen to the book and he's got like this great like talking voice that is so easy and simple. It's like, it's great. I love it so much. Um, but one of the things that you said in the book that I just thought really stuck with me and it has stuck with me, it says, any society that consistently prioritizes peace over justice will soon find itself with neither. And I think that all of this piece of what we're talking about here is like always choosing, uh, you know, compromise over conscience or over progress. It really, really speaks to that. And I'm thinking about, you know, hearing all of these instances throughout our history of compromising, um, it, it really, for me, recontextualized the black fatigue, right? Um, in a country full of people of color with low expectations of the government, right? And like that are tired and frustrated with, you know, not getting elected, not getting opportunities, not getting safety, not, you know, not being heard. How do you think this trend really, I mean, I don't even know if it's a trend because it's been happening throughout American history, but like, how do you, how do you think this through line serves as an indicator of the moment that we're in right now and how we should be approaching it? Well, first, let me just say, uh, in terms of the audiobook, since you mentioned that, <laughs> that um, I would, I, I have to say the reason why I did it, why I read the audiobook is because of you. Uh, because the, the publisher was just going to get somebody else to read it. And then you called me up and said, you have to read your own audiobook. I was like, oh, yeah, I've never done an audiobook. I've never read that before. So uh, so it was three days of sitting in a studio recording it, but it was well worth it uh, to have my own voice. I was adamant with you about that because I hate getting a book from an author and they're not the one reading it. it it's my number one uh, frustration with that. So I'm glad you recommended that. But in terms of answering your question, I, I do think we're in that moment right now still. You see that with the talks about infrastructure and the three and a half trillion dollar uh, budget bill and all these other concerns that are being raised about these sort of um, standard race neutral issues for America to address. But when it comes to the issues that affect black people and brown people specifically, when it comes to the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act or the John Lewis Voting Rights Act or the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act, there's no progress being made. Even though we have a Democratic House, a Democratic Senate, and a Democratic president, they're hiding behind the rules of an antiquated uh, system called the filibuster, which is not even in the Constitution, to say, we can't do anything about this to help you black people. We're going to focus on these, on these general issues to help everyone. The problem with that is that those general issues that help everyone, they're fine. Everybody supports healthcare and all these other things that, that have an, an, a benefit for a, a universal uh, group of people. But they don't do anything to eliminate the racial disparities in America. So if you give everybody uh, $5 and some people have $50,000 and some people have no dollars, you're not really making a dent in the racial disparities in America. You have to have some sort of system to create equality. And that's what we haven't done. There's been this focus on just on, on, on peace for white people repeatedly. And this is what's going on now. Democrats even are more concerned about getting that elusive white working class voter from the Midwest and middle America, more so than catering to the people who are the most loyal constituency of the Democratic Party, the African-American vote. And so I tell people that we as black people need to hold Democrats accountable. We can't let them off the hook. And I'm a lifelong Democrat, no intention of ever voting for Republican, I don't, not at least at this point. And yet- Not even Colin Powell back in the day? 
I, you know, I, I kind of liked Colin Powell I'm kidding, before. I'm kidding. Actually, I did actually, before <laughs> the whole Iran Contra, not Iran Contra, the whole uh, 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 Iraq weapons of mass destruction thing. Uh, but, but you know, he's, you have been a lifelong Democrat, yes. Yeah, but I would never. Yeah, yeah. He'd have to make some changes. <laughs> but, 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 but you, you know the point. I mean, this is like. I, I, it, we were seeing this with a discussion about Haiti a few weeks back, where uh, I, I and you and other people were, were critical of the of the Biden administration and, and of Kamala Harris and Joe Biden in particular uh, for allowing these white men on horses to attack black migrants simply trying to request asylum, a legal thing to do in this country, uh, with images that were evocative of slavery, of slave patrols and whips. And it, 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 it was it was so disturbing to see that. And people were saying, well, we shouldn't talk too much about that. We should give them a chance. No, this is this is our, this is our responsibility to fight for the causes that are important for us, not to to give somebody a chance. We have to we have to hold our leaders accountable. If, if you if if a president or a vice president does something to help to hurt the Jewish community, the Jewish community has lobbying groups that will fight for their own interests and they won't allow that to happen. And, and, the, and the American politicians won't go down that road. We have to be just as aggressive in fighting for our own interest. Uh, one of the things that you talk about in the book uh, is that no Democrat has won the white vote since 1964, even with white Southern Democrats, Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton. Um, what is it going to take for that kind of uh, thing that we've seen within the Democratic Party, like to break where we could finally start seeing more progress? Because we've seen a black president, we now have a woman, black, Asian, you know, vice president. Like, what is it going to take to be able to see that shift in your opinion? Well, I think the problem is that the Democratic Party takes black votes for granted, and the Republican Party doesn't even try. Uh, because they realized after 1964 that they don't even need the black vote to win. They hunkered down in the Southern strategy. And as you pointed out, since Lyndon Johnson, the Democratic president, signed the Civil Rights Act in 1964, no Democratic presidential nominee has ever won the white vote. And so even though a lot of people were saying, well, Barack Obama is reparations for hundreds of years of slavery and segregation, the reality is that First of all, he's not. No one candidate for office or a president could ever eliminate hundreds of years of slavery or segregation or the effects of that. But secondly, most white people didn't even vote for him. So I mean, it's like, how, how do you get to say that he's reparations when you didn't even support this? This is black and brown people who voted for him. We have now a situation where the Republican Party has become the party of white people. The majority of black people don't vote for, for Republicans. They vote for Democrats. The majority of Latinos, the majority of Asian Americans, the majority of, of Native American, indigenous people, they all vote for, de for Democrats. The only group of people in this country that, that demographically that votes for Republicans are white Americans. And so that situation won't change until... Uh, white Americans find uh, the Republican Party finds it doesn't work for them to, to get elected. Uh, and that's going to require us, those of us who uh, care about our country and care about democracy, to do something to stop it. We have to be engaged in the process. You know, I'm not telling people to, to check out. I'm telling people to check in. Vote in your local elections for your for your for your state attorney general, for your governor, for recall elections. Vote for city council. Vote for mayor. Vote for school board. And then once you vote for these people, demand that they do what you tell what you told them to do. Send them letters. Call them up. Go to their offices. Protest. Go to the city council meetings. We have to be engaged in democracy. Even protest in the streets. Whatever it takes to get their attention to make sure they do what we want them to do. You and I talk very often, so I'm like, I'm trying to figure out all the things like, where do we talk about things here on the show that that we are that we've already had conversations about? But one of the things that I thought was really interesting um, is that you draw a juxtaposition to the ways a few white Americans in Benghazi sparked multiple investigations and you know really harmed Hillary Clinton as a as a candidate, but the killing of thousands of black folks here at home can't seem to make it to court, right? Like we finally got you know George Floyd's uh, murderer right uh, in. Prison. I thought that was such an interesting juxtaposition. Can you unpack that a little bit? It's, it, yeah, it's actually a broad kind of concept about devaluing black life. 
and overvaluing white life. We saw, we saw it with the missing white women syndrome. Uh, we see it in terms of the capital punishment in our country, where if you kill somebody who's white, you're more likely to be executed than if you kill somebody who's black. And we absolutely saw it with Benghazi, where the deaths of four white people in Libya, 5,000 miles away, was seen as such a crisis, at least for the Republican Party, that they launched a dozen and a half investigations spent millions of dollars pursuing this for years over these deaths. But they didn't do that over the, the, the people who were black and brown who were being killed by police. They didn't do it over the COVID crisis when we, we have 600, 700,000 people who've died from COVID. They don't want to investigate what we did wrong with that, at least not to the, the extent that involves the previous, previous administration. They didn't do it about the insurrection where there was a threat to democracy itself, an attempt to take over our government. They don't want to investigate that, but they want to investigate the, the, the loss of life for white people. And even when we talk about the insurrection, they're more concerned about Ashley Babbitt, the white woman who was shot and killed by a black uh, Capitol Police officer, than they are about the fact that they were trying to destroy our democracy. <laughs> With a little tourist event at the Capitol. Um, I, one of the things I'm really happy about in the book that you talk about is there's always like this deification of Abraham Lincoln, right? Um, and there's always this conversation about, oh, he freed the slaves and blah, 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 blah. But like, you kind of open that up in a, in a way that I think is really important. And I feel like more and more people are starting to have conversation about like, listen, Abraham Lincoln was not here for black people. He just wanted to save the union and would do whatever it was, that whatever it took. Can you talk a little bit about why you, you don't feel like Abraham Lincoln is the transformational figure um, that, that he's often made out to be? His legacy is a significant one. Um... But he was still a white supremacist, and people forget that. He expressly stated in his own writing that he would prefer that white people be superior to black people. Uh, he expressly stated in his own writing, as you just indicated, that if he could save the Union by freeing some slaves, he would do that. If, if he could save it by freeing none of the slaves, he would do that. Or if he could free, save it by freeing all the slaves, he would do that. But his paramount objective, he said, was to save the union, not to free the slaves. So he wasn't really so much concerned about us as he was about the union. This is a, that same issue again about this, the compromises we make so that white people feel safe and secure instead of prioritizing the concerns of black people who are in desperate need of justice. And Lincoln provides us that example. Thomas Jefferson as well. And we talk about Jefferson as this, the, the, the architect and author of the Declaration of Independence, but we also know that he owned slaves. We know that he had, he had intercourse with and raped his slave, Sally Hemings. We, we know that George Washington owned hundreds of slaves. And we, we know that, in my opinion, I think that every American president has been infected by the, the virus of racism to, to a certain extent, black or white. I, I just don't see how in this country you could not be uh, at, at that level of power. Um, and even though we have had a black president, we now have a black woman vice president, we have to do a better job of acknowledging the truth about how racist our country has been and stop perpetuating this lie whenever some, some crisis comes up and people say, oh, this is not who we are. This is so none, this is not American. We're better than this, right? No, we're not. Even Obama would say things like, uh, there's nothing wrong with America that can't be fixed, but what's right with America? You know, and all that rhetoric sounds wonderful, but the reality is different, and people need to be made aware of that and stop the mythology of American exceptionalism. One of the other things I really thought was interesting in the book, and as I said, I'm still in it right now, um, you talked about Ronald Reagan ushering in a new era of subtlety and American political racism. And I, we've heard plenty about Ronald Reagan not being a saint. Um, but that part of the conversation I thought was really, really interesting. Uh, talk to me a little bit about that era and, and how Ronald Reagan changed um, the racism in politics. Well, I think Reagan did three things, both before he was president and after he was president, that helped to change the, the dialogue. One, in 1976, he runs for president, he starts talking about welfare queens, and he creates this archetype, fake archetype of this 
of this black woman in Chicago who has 18 different names and is collecting checks from all these different places and drives a Cadillac and lives in, you know, all the, this, all the stereotypes that white people have about, about welfare, even though the majority of people who are on welfare are white. Uh, and that happens in 1976. He doesn't win the election that time, but he starts that trend. 1980, he runs again and he starts talking about states' rights. This is a guy from California, for God's sake. He's not from the South. He's not from Alabama. But he goes to he goes to Mississippi and launches his general election campaign in Mississippi, at the same place in Neshoba County where the four uh, uh, civil rights workers were killed uh, in in the 1960s. He goes there and and he gives them a speech about states' rights. Well, you know, a, a, a white Republican from from California going to 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 the South to talk about states' rights. That's that's in 1980. Then he becomes president, and guess what he does? He cuts taxes. The top marginal tax rate is cut from 70 percent to 28 percent. Now people say, "Oh, what does that have to do with anything?" That's not race. That's economics. People need the, the their tax tax rates cut. Well, those are tax rates that are being cut from the, the richest of the richest of people. And what happens is when you take that money out of the federal government's coffers, what, where does, what, who, who benefits from that and who loses from that? The people who lose, it, who lose are the people who were receiving the, the welfare assistance, who were receiving housing assistance, who, who, were, who were receiving some sort of assistance to, to find employment or job training, people who wanted to get health care or, or child care, or even local communities and cities that were being defunded. So simply by cutting taxes, they were able to take out all this money from black and brown communities, recirculate it, and have this massive transfer of wealth to white communities so that they could benefit, so the suburbs could benefit. And then they could look at black people and say, well, why are you doing so poorly? Well, we took all this government money and took it from the inner cities and we gave it to the suburbs. That's why black people started doing so poorly in the 80s. It wasn't because of the crack epidemic, it was because the government defunded us and overfunded or, or, or began to fund the suburbs. I love this point about taxes. Uh, one of my friends who works in Congress always talks about when Republicans are, are making cuts, the long-term effects that that has, right? And I think that so many of us have conversations about tax cuts through the lens of like, oh, well, you know, people are going to have more money or people are going to have less money or whatever. But I don't think people think about it through the lens of like the long-term effects in Congress. If we're talking about tax cuts and how, you know, things are going to get defunded, as you just mentioned, right? The way that that has a long-term impact is how that money is now taken out of the budget and it requires more revenue to be able to bring those things back, right? Which then has to be campaigned on as raising taxes on someone, as Joe Biden has talked about, raising the, the taxes on the on, on the highest uh, earning uh, Americans. And like, that is a hard thing to get people to get excited about raising their taxes, right? And like Republicans continue to do this and erode away at programs that that tend to help marginalized groups and often white people more than anyone, right? If we're talking about welfare specifically. Um, and so I, I appreciate that conversation about taxes. You, you talked in the book about racially coded political vernacular um, in the ways that that they stopped using the words segregation and started talking about forced busing, or they stopped talking about criminals and started talking about law and order. They stopped talking about lazy black people and started talking about welfare. What is the, the consequence of that when we see the ways that they've started kind of moving the language to be something different, but really still talking about the same thing? Well, you know, it's interesting because I almost feel like that conversation is now out of date uh, because of Donald Trump. But there was a trend that took place starting in the late 1960s with the Republican Southern strategy. Lee Atwater, a former Republican strategist who died in the 1990s, did this famous interview with The Atlantic, I think in 1980-something, where he, he discusses the Southern strategy. And he says, well, in the 1950s, you can use the N-word, and you can say, well, we don't like these people, the N-words. Uh, in the 1960s, it gets a little bit more difficult to do that because of uh, the whole issue with civil rights. So then you start talking about forced busing and things like that. By the time you get to the 1980s, you can talk about things like tax cuts and, and government overreach and, and just more abstract things that don't sound like you're talking about race. But the, the, the bottom line is still the same. Black people still get hurt the most. This is Lee Atwater, a Republican strategist, saying this openly, admitting it. You know, and, and so that's been their strategy for some 50 years. The difference and the reason why I think that's, that comment may now be outdated is because Donald Trump started saying the quiet part out loud. 
Uh, and that was what Republicans were afraid of when he first came to office. You know, they thought, well, we they, we knew that they knew that their base liked to hear those things, but they didn't want to say those things because they thought that was toxic and it was too far for the suburban uh, sort of white Republican voter to hear. But they discovered that even that was okay because even after Donald Trump spent five years demonizing Mexicans and Muslims and blacks and immigrants and anybody who wasn't white, essentially, in his vision of the world, he still got 74 million people to vote for him for president of the United States after everything that we went through. I think that's an interesting point because it feels like everything is kind of coming to a head, right? Like the... <laughs> I'm going to use this reference. Y'all might be mad at me. I've been watching like a lot of the Dr. Pimple Popper videos and it's it's a terrible thing to watch. Don't watch it, but it's also really entertaining. But like I think about the ways that like there's so much happening underneath the surface, right, that you don't end up seeing. And it begins to create a little bit of a bump, right? And then like the more and more that things continue to grow, it it continues to grow until it comes to a head. And I feel like we're kind of coming to that point in American culture where people are fine just being racist they're fine with their their flags with their language with their rhetoric and my concern is like i don't see what shifts us back into be or not even back but what shifts us into a better culture or society without a significant if not catastrophic um catalyst how are you viewing that when you're thinking about where we are in America right now and where we're going? What What is required to see something change for our relations around race to be better? Sadly, I agree with you. Um, I talk about this in, in, the, in the context of the choice that we face, uh, a choice between fear and love. And the real truth is that we could either go forward or we could go backward. And there's no guarantee that we're going to go forward. The tendency, I think, um, even among progressives to a certain extent, is to assume that this will all be worked out over time as the older generation, they die off and, and the racists and xenophobes and the sexists and the misogynists and homophobes and transphobes, they disappear. And, and then the diversity of the country will inevitably create the change we want. I'm not sure that's going to happen. And for a lot of reasons. For one, we have to work to make that change happen. It doesn't happen automatically. Dr. King talked about that too. He said that time is neutral. It can be used constructively or destructively. But even if we didn't have to work for it, we have to understand that those the, 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 the current people who remain in power have engineered systems to stay in power for decades, regardless of whether they're the majority or not. That's why the Constitution gives power to tiny states like North Dakota and South Dakota and essentially disenfranchises millions of people in states like California. With 39 million people in California, you have two senators just like the North Dakota with, with seven, eight hundred thousand people. It's, it's an outrage that these small white states get the same representation in the United States Senate to be able to block legislation that's important for all people. Uh, whereas the, one of the, the biggest state in our country in population with a much more diverse population is, is, is deprived of adequate representation. So we have all these issues, structural issues that make it difficult to, uh, to move forward until we have some sort of fundamental restructuring of our country. Uh, the same thing with the, with the, the fact that we only have, uh, we don't have statehood for district, the District of Columbia or for Puerto Rico. The same thing with the filibuster. The same thing with voting rights and the effort to stop the voting rights. And so my fear is that the insurrection that happened in January is not the end, but just the beginning. My fear is that this could continue and, and escalate in the future, uh, and that this could be a series of different clashes and skirmishes that take place until there is another civil war in this country. We came, we, I think we came perilously close to the dissolution of the Union in the past five years. I don't think people realize just how dangerously close we came to that point. And, but for Donald Trump's own ignorance of the way of the functions of government, I think we could have been we could have been to the point where we're either li living under a dictatorship or living under a failed state. It drives me a little bit crazy when people talk about how democracy, you know, survived on January 6th when you know they confirmed Donald uh, Trump had lost the election and, and Joe Biden would be our new president, because I don't think we know that yet. I think that it's a, a beautiful thing to say, and I think it's, you know, really cute in a meme or in a soundbite, but, like, we don't know if democracy survived, and I think that 
I think that we're seeing that now as we're beginning the run up to midterm elections. And I think that when we get to 2024, we're really going to see like the damage that has been done. I'm really concerned about our, our elections and democracy in general, because I don't think enough people are paying attention to what Republicans are doing to voting right now. Right. Um, and we're, if we're talking about voting rights, that's one element of it, but also the way that they're questioning voting and the ways that they are, you know, quote unquote, auditing what's happening in, in what happened in elections and stuff like that. Also, to your other point about South Dakota and North Dakota, neither one of those states has a million people in them, right? California has almost 40 million people in it, more than the population of Canada. However, North Dakota has the same number of senators that California does. South Dakota has the same number of senators that California does. And it just does not make sense. So I appreciate that point. Um, I got to wrap us up, but I know that this book is not all doom and gloom and like frustration about about race in America. And I don't want to give away all of your solutions, but you do have a perspective on the ways that America can be better and can and put us on a different path. Talk to us a little bit about that part of the book without, and, and get people to go and read it, but like talk to us about how you're thinking about solutions. You know, I, after writing, the, the book is divided in three, three parts. The first part is about 2020. The second part is about how we got to 2020, where I go back in time and look at the steps that led us to that point. Uh, all the way up to the insurrection, essentially. And then the third part is about where do we go from there? Where do we go from here to move forward? And uh, there I talk about, well, I have three chapter titles to give you an idea of what, what it's about. Atonement, accountability, and equality. And I won't go into all the detail about it, but atonement is basically white people have a responsibility to atone for the sins of the past. They have a responsibility in order to move this country forward, in order for white people to feel safe in this country, and in order for white people to feel safe, to feel comfortable with themselves, they have an obligation to atone for the past, not just to apologize, although that's an important part of it and to recognize their history, but actually take affirmative action, affirmative steps to atone for the past. Secondly, is about accountability. And this is really about those of us who are black and brown, and particularly African-Americans, that we need to start doing a better job of holding our leaders accountable, whether they're black or white, Democrat or Republican, doesn't matter. We have to, we can't let people take advantage of us anymore. We can't let one party or another assume that our votes are going to be there without demanding that they do what we need to do. We need them to do to help us out. And then thirdly is about equality. And there I'm basically saying that we have to stop looking at at civil rights and, and racial progress is simply, oh, let's just create equal, equal access to people and make things marginally better for black people. Uh, when the real goal should be, how do we reach equal outcomes? How do we eliminate the persistent racial disparities in employment, in education, in healthcare, in the environment, in housing, in criminal justice system? How do we eliminate all those racial disparities? Until we do, we don't really achieve full racial equality. So we need to change our goalposts. It shouldn't be just, let's pass another law. It should be, we, can, we could pass 10,000 more laws. We can, we can do reparations or whatever we need to do until we get to the point where we reach full racial equality. What I love about this book, this conversation, is I'm always thinking about how everything is not about race, but race is in almost everything. Yes, it is. <laughs> right? And we can find a, a, a piece of race in just about every conversation, race has an impact. And so, uh, Keith, I'm really excited about this book. As I said, I'm reading it right now and enjoying it. And uh, everyone, go check out Race Against Time, The Politics of a Darkening America. It's available wherever books are sold. Keith is on world tour right now, going from city to city, uh, talking to people about it and on all the television. Um, and tell people where they can follow you and find out more about the work that you're doing. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram, at Keith Boykin, K-E-I-T. B-O-Y-K-I-N. And um, I'm all over social media. I'm on CNN as well as a political commentator. And I also want to thank you for uh, all that you're doing here. I uh, appreciate the, the podcast. appreciate you having me on here. And also thank you for coming out to the, the Los Angeles event we had. Uh, that was really nice. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Really, really proud of everything that you're doing. Um, we're going to take a quick break. We want to know what y'all think about it. Hit us up on Twitter and Instagram at Fanti Podcast. Use the hashtag FantiFam to let us know what you're thinking about this conversation about race. We'll take a quick break. And I've got dishonorable mentions with both of our guests coming up next. A man was walking along a beach which represented his life. At his feet were two sets of footprints, his and God's. 
but looking back down the beach, the man could see that in the hardest parts of his life, there was only one set of footprints. So the man said to God, why is there only one set of footprints when times were hard? Where were you? And God replied, My precious child, I was in my car, listening to the Beef and Dairy Network podcast. The Beef and Dairy Network podcast is a multi-award winning comedy podcast and you can find it at MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Lisa Hannawalt. And I'm Emily Heller. Nine years ago, we started a podcast to try and learn something new every episode. Things have gone a little off the rails since then. <laughs> Tune in to hear about low stakes neighborhood drama, gardening, the sordid, nasty underbelly of the horse girl lifestyle, hot sauce, addiction to TV and sweaty takes on celebrity culture, and the weirdest, grossest stuff you can find on wikipedia.org. We'll read all of it no matter how gross. <laughs> There's something for everyone on our podcast, Baby Geniuses. Hosted by us, two horny adult idiots. Hang out with us as we try and fail to retain any knowledge at all every other week on maximum fun all right welcome back it is time for us to get into our dishonorable mentions these are the stories or people that caught our attention this week that deserve a call out either for their good or their stupid both of my guests are back with mentions of their own asha what you got well, as we've been taping this, I know this is, uh, you know, late September, R. Kelly has just been found guilty of uh, sexual exploitation, racketeering and sex trafficking. So he gets the dishonorable mention. I mean, this should have this verdict should have happened a long time ago and justice will finally happen. He faces a possible sentence of 10 years to life in prison. And the honorable mention, I think, you know, goes without saying the victim's that have been named in this case and the, the numerous victims that were victimized by R. Kelly and may not have been involved in this case. Most notably, uh, singer Aaliyah, as many people would know her. And we just recently passed the 20th, 20th anniversary of her death. So justice comes better late than ever. But all the others in this case, specifically a woman named Stephanie, and I'm reading off a news article, Stephanie, Geronda Pace, Jane, and another Stephanie, um, as well as Aaliyah. So I want to give them an honorable mention for you know, really being brave and stepping forward, sharing their stories, being so vulnerable and putting themselves out there for potential attacks from people. I think it's it just really shows that, you know, these kind of cases, these kind of awful people need to be exposed no matter whether they're celebrities or everyday people. So I want to turn to Keith. Keith, what is your honorable or dishonorable mention this week? I have an honorable mention. I want to shout out to Ted Wynn, a gospel recording artist and friend of mine, who has recorded a new version of Inner City Blues, the Marvin Gaye classic, which came out 50 years ago uh, this September, uh, last month. And uh, it's a wonderful remake of the Marvin Gaye song, Makes Me Want to Holler. And I recommend that everyone download it, stream it, buy it, and support Ted Wynn. Great guy and politically active, engaged, wonderful person. Thank you so much, Keith. I appreciate it. All right. Well, that is going to do it for them. My honorable mention this week is going to me for taking a break and not dealing with any of the bullshit, not doing any kind of work and not having any kind of schedule. I'm enjoying vacation. I hope that y'all get some kind of rest, some time for yourselves uh, and do the things that you need to be doing to take care. Um, so honorable mention to me and y'all will be fine. Um, before we go, I wanna let y'all know if this conversation with Keith Boykin piqued your interest and you want more of this, Travel would normally say good, good. Check out other episodes that have related conversation. Episode 51 that came out on January 21st, it's called Donald Trump Has Left the Building. Keith Boykin is on there talking about all things to do with politics in that moment um, as we were uh, coming into a new presidency. Really, really great episode. One of the episodes we've got more feedback on uh, than many others, so make sure to check that out. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, first of all, thank you. We ask that you leave a five-star rating and a review let us know what you think about the show. If you have a comment or a suggestion about this week's show, you can tweet at us using Fanti Podcast. At Fanti Podcast works both on Twitter and Instagram. Make sure to use the hashtag FantiFam. You can also send us an email. Let us know what you're thinking, your feelings, your questions, your concerns, what pitches you have, because y'all love to tell us what we should do on the show. Our email address is Fanti at MaximumFun.org. You can join the Fanti Fam, be a financially supporting member of the show and of Maximum 
Maximum Fund and all of the fantastic things that we have going on at Maximum Fund, go to MaximumFund.org slash join. Our music is brought to you by Corice. That is C-O-R dot E-C-E. You can get that music wherever you get your Slayworthy audio. Our graphics are designed by the wonderful folks over at Moonhouse Creative under the direction of Ashley Wen. Our producers are Laura Swisher. Do I have to do the air horn too? Just and Lorraine. That's not. I'm still working on that, Lorraine. It's gonna be okay. We're figuring it out. This is a production of Maximum Fun. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned, audience supported. Do I also need to do this block party thing? I think we did it once. Do you still have the recording, Laura, that we can just... Yeah. Okay. Okay, beautiful people. We are here to tell y'all about this really interesting thing that we want y'all to engage with. It's the Maximum Fun Block Party, okay? The network that our show is on, that's what's called Maximum Fun, you hear us say it at the end of every single episode, is throwing a virtual block party until October 22nd, and you are invited. During this block party, all of the Max Fun shows are releasing episodes that are especially welcoming to new audience, like this one you're listening to now, so be sure to, you know, spread the word send it to your little family your friends let them know what kind of goodness okay that good good that brilliance that they can get from us as well as all the other shows on maximum fun okay so if you've been encouraging a friend to try out our show for a minute because y'all keep saying y'all have this is the perfect episode <laughs> that you can share with them it's also a great time to check out shows that you've been a little bit curious about because they're all going to be releasing episodes that are really geared toward a new audience like yourself. Block Party also has games, recommendations, a volunteer event, and a limited edition poster, and so much more. You're going to find out more all about that on MaximumFun.org slash Block Party. Again, that's MaximumFun.org slash Block Party. I said Block Party. Slash Block Party. <laughs>